Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Good morning, Covenant. So good to see you. If you're a guest, my name was Joel, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a delight to welcome you here on this 4th of July weekend. Who's eating watermelon already? I did just last week. Who shot fireworks off? Still got all your fingers? All 10 of them there? Hope you are getting ready to enjoy just a great time. Just to, just to note, our office is closed tomorrow and on Tuesday. Um, that doesn't mean we are unavailable to you. Tuesday is a holiday, uh, but we, we close the office on Monday because, frankly, so many staff have taken paid time off. We're not going to have enough front office staff to keep it open, but I would imagine very few of you actually care about what we do on the Monday before the 4th anyway. I'll be in. Pastor Dave will be in. I think Charity's coming in. I mean, there, there will be people here if you need us for something, but certainly hope that you enjoy celebrating our nation's independence and uh, watching whatever patriotic movies you normally watch during this time of year. For me, it's The Patriot. Who? Right? Um, but it's, everybody's kind of got their movie. But I really hope you enjoy it. Welcome uh, as well to a brand new message series called Ask Anything Summer. Uh, this actually is the, well, what we did, for those of you maybe, if this is your first week, uh, we're taking the summer to just address some questions. And so we said over the, about the last three or four months, if you have questions, send them in. Nothing is off the table. And um, we'll, we'll deal as much as we can with as many of them as we can and try to address all of them. There's absolutely no way I can do that because, well, I start a sabbatical the 1st of August, and I'll be telling you more about that uh, as in the ensuing weeks. Um, and so we've only got a few short weeks to deal with this. But what this does, it does two things. Number one, uh, it allows you to ask things that are on your mind. The second thing it does, <coughs> sorry, sorry guys, I don't know where that came from. The second thing it does is it allows those of us who are pastors to know the hearts of our people. And in a lot of ways, it's like the book that we're going to look at today in 1 Corinthians. Paul is really, um, if you, in terms of the history, he's addressing a congregation and he's answering their questions. And so that's, that's what we want to do. So you guys had all kinds of questions that you asked. Um, I'm not going to have time to get to all of them here. <coughs> However, uh, I do want to let you know we have um, podcast um, special editions that are actually coming out. So, and I'm going to get rid of this tickle in just a minute. Um, we, we have um, special editions of the podcast that are coming out. So if you subscribe to the podcast, if you don't, you should. Apple Podcasts, I know there may be some other uh, channels out there where you can get it, but you can subscribe. It's just, it's just messages from Covenant. It's the weekly sermons. <clears throat> you can listen to them on the train uh, or in your car when you're commuting, while you're cutting grass, whatever you're doing. Uh, and these will be three additional uh, uh, subjects or three additional episodes that I am going to cut uh, or that actually have already been cut and are in production right now. So, for example, <coughs> I said something rather audacious the other week. I said that there will be no third temple. And one of you had actually read Ezekiel 40 through 48, and you said that's an eight-chapter-long description of a third temple. So, Pastor, what's the deal with that? Well, I address that in this series. Uh, some of you asked about the role of women, particularly in light of what the largest Protestant denomination in North America just did, the Saddleback Church. And so we try to deal with that subject. Some of you had questions about religion and politics, and more particularly this issue that's been known as, as Christian nationalism. I try to deal with that. All of that are in those special editions. So watch your inbox, watch your social media feeds uh, for opportunities to subscribe, to like, even if you just give us one star and say that was awful. Hey, that's attention, right? So do that for us. And um, I hope that uh, the month of July will be a month where <clears throat> Even if you don't get all those questions answered, you'll get some of them answered. Today, I thought we'd ease in. Don't want to get too deep too quickly. Don't want to get too controversial. 
So we're going to talk about the LGBT movement. <laughs> and, um, and here's the thing. This will surprise no one that heads and shoulders above all the other questions I received were a multiplicity of questions around this issue. Um, that, that really should surprise no one, given the, the cultural malaise that we find ourselves in, so much of the confusion. And so because of that, there were many different kinds of questions related to the same issue, but they're, they're, they're coming from different angles. And so the challenge around this is to address this in, in a world that is becoming increasingly complex around it. And so basically, I think what we can do, though, in a, in a short time frame like this is ask two primary questions. The first one is, very simply, as a church, what do we believe as a congregation? What do we believe about gender, about marriage, about sexuality? How would Scripture uh, tell us to think about these issues? That's more important than many of you think because there have been many attempts in probably the last 20 or 30 years uh, to sort of reinvent a hermeneutic that tries to stay faithful to Scripture but wants to kind of bring in another category. And, and so you've got a lot of voices even inside the evangelical church, and they're getting more frequent and more bold that, that seek to kind of cast doubt on, on what we typically call the traditional approach to this. And so we just want to deal honestly, as, as honestly as we can with those arguments. But the second question is this. How do we remember that ultimately this is about people? All right? There are some in faith communities that we partner with, uh, people that worship in other religions that partner with us, that are friends of ours. One of the ways we know we're doing something right is that we're in relationship with, with just such people. And some of those communities disagree with some of the things I'm going to say this morning. And maybe they're watching right now or they'll watch the live stream or the, the streaming service later and they feel very uncomfortable around this subject. And then, uh, nevertheless, there are some of you. Thank you, brother. Not sure if it'll do me any good, but I'll do my best. Uh, some of you who are here and um, you're thinking to yourself, well, what about my child? What about my brother, my sister? What about my coworker? What about my sister and new sister-in-law? What do I do with that? What about my loved one who feels trapped in a body that they don't believe corresponds to, to who they really are? And, and so if we're going to deal even with those two questions, we've got to be very intentional and very disciplined and narrow our scope here. So at the outset, let me set that scope of, to, for you, and it will, it will disappoint some of you, but you'll get over it. <clears throat> we are not, this morning, talking about the civil society side of this issue, okay? We don't have time for it. I'm not saying it's unimportant. I'm saying there are more important things. Same-sex marriage is legal in the United States, has been since 2015. We're not talking about that today. We're not talking about what the law should or shouldn't be. We're not talking about this raging culture war that's going on around this issue right now. Here's what we are talking about. <clears throat> now that you and I are in the minority position on this issue, how should we conduct ourselves as the church? And what should we recognize? within our own midst. And let me tell you why I think that's important. It's because society at large has not responded in the best way to these issues or to these individuals. And I think one of the reasons, things we can be thankful for with the current argument, even as raging as it is, is that it has put a human face on these discussions. And so as we start this morning, I want us to start with this, uh, a little bit of self-critique. If for no other reason than Jesus tells us, does he not, in Matthew 7, that to, we need to ensure that the plank is removed from our own eyes before we seek to point out the speck in others. I think sometimes it gets claimed that <clears throat> what we have witnessed even in the church over the last two or three decades, and certainly culture at large is a slow falling away from the scriptural teaching around this issue, but I'm going to suggest something different. I think it's possible overall that most churches never had a biblical stand on this in the first place. And that may surprise some of you. But I'm not sure if you went back 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago that we really approached this from a position of having thoroughly explored God's word and having come to a comprehensive conclusion. I would say, suggest instead that most churches were simply content to adopt a cultural position that was close enough to our own to make us lazy. In other words, we were part of a culture that a generation ago believed, at least on the surface, what most of us believe about this issue. And so we kind of assumed that 
It would always be this way. And so we just sort of piggybacked on culture rather than actually digging deep into the word ourselves. And I think the chief evidence of that, honestly, might be the way that the church, along with the rest of the culture, treated this community of people over the last several decades. Guys, I grew up in the 1980s. When you spend an entire decade with the sum total of your response to this community simply saying to them, AIDS is God's judgment on you, that is neither a thoughtful, thoroughly biblically literate view, nor is, a, is, a, is it a view that reflects the love of Jesus or people that he died to save. Now, here's, here's what I say at the outset. There is such a thing as bona fide homophobia. Much of it can be found wearing a religious veneer, and that should be called what it is, sinful. People who are created in the image of God for whom Jesus died are not to be treated that way. Okay, So with all that in the background, here's what you need to know. We're talking about people, and we're talking about people who make looking honestly at what the Bible actually says on this issue a very difficult thing to do, but just like we're supposed to go to Matthew 7, we're supposed to go to the rest of the text too, aren't we? We must go to the scriptures because we are Christian. And when we go there, we can't go to the six or so texts that all of us are thinking of right now, the so-called clobber texts, as, as our, our ideological opponents might call us. We, we actually have to go all the way back to the point of creation because those six texts have a context, and that context is biblical history, and that biblical history began at the dawn of creation. <clears throat> We're told in the early chapters of Genesis that God created the world and all that it contains that he created man in his image and likeness. And then he said, it is not good for this man to be alone. I will make for him a helper that is suitable for him. What's interesting is in the intervening verses between God actually saying this and creating that helper, uh, Adam actually goes through all of the different animal kingdom. And he names all of these different animals. But then the, the scriptures are very careful to say, but there was not a suitable helper found among any of those for him. And so God creates a woman, fashions her from the man, but also in his image and likeness. And the two of them together, fashioned in his image, are placed in a garden side by side. And that relationship then becomes the foundational precedent for every marriage relationship that would ever ensue. I just had the privilege, the honor of officiating a wedding on Friday afternoon. Beautiful day, even in light of all that smoke, up in a vineyard in Maryland. And this is one of the things I said right at the outset. When we speak of Christian marriage, we're speaking of an institution that's older than any civil contractor, for that matter, any civil government. It is rooted in the earliest time of creation. And we find that precedent in Genesis 2 and verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So a man leaves, which means you establish a level of independence as an adult, dudes, that means you get a job, among other things. You grow up, you take care of yourself, you grow in your relationship with God, and then you unite with one another. There's your precedent. Rooted in creation, one man, one woman, one lifetime, naked, unashamed. That is God's good intention. That is God's gift to you and to me. But then one chapter later, we see that sin enters the world through our own parents' rebellion. And it corrupts absolutely everything in the cosmos, including God's intended design for male and female, God's intended relationship for male and female in marriage. And, and so here's the question that this narrative presents kind of at the outset. When we speak of homosexuality, when we speak of bisexuality, when we speak of transgenderism, when we speak of those issues, we have to ask if those presentations of humanity, those behaviors are reflective of the corruption that came after the fall or are they reflections of the image of God that precedes that corruption? Theologically, that's the question. That's the question and that's the root of the disagreement and that's the heart of the issue. Now, when I say, is it a result of corruption, I don't mean by that that God punishes you by making you gay. I don't mean that God uh, punishes you by making you a certain way. I don't mean that you are a certain way because you did something, all right? Any more than I've, I'm nearsighted. I wear contact lenses. Just got my first pair of bifocals about a year ago. 
and I almost fell down my stairs. Right? Yeah, and those of you laughing are like, oh, yeah, we know about those bifocals. Yeah, getting used to those things, right? And so as my eyes get older, that, you know, that, that's probably, apart from a miracle of God, not going to get any better. But, it, but, but I've been nearsighted since I was five, people. God didn't do that to me because of something I did when I was three. That's not punishment, all right? It, it, there's nothing deficient in me inherently as a human being because I have that particular issue going on in my life. However, I think most of us were, would agree, nearsightedness was not a part of God's original plan in the creation, right? God intent. We will have perfect sight when we get to glory. And so when we say, is this a reflection of the corruption, that's what we're talking about. And, and when we understand it that way, it brings us to another understanding. Orientation in and of itself is not sinful. That really should not be controversial at all, but, but it kind of is, right? People come to me and they go, well, well is, it, is it a sin to be gay? Well, well, if by that, what you mean is, I happen to be attracted to people of the same gender, and that's all you mean, then the answer is no. No. I don't have your particular struggle. If that's you, I'm heterosexual. Finding the opposite sex attractive is not sinful it's the meaning of heterosexual all right everybody got that all right who, who you find attractive those are, that's that's not the question the question is is it a sin to act on those attractions okay i'm wearing a ring on my finger that says i belong exclusively to someone else so acting on an attraction to a third party yeah that's the question and if these things are a reflection, not of the image of God, but of the corruption of that image, then acting on those attractions is sinful and forbidden. Now, again, I don't, I don't have time to go terribly deeply into this, but I will give you a couple of great resources that our elders lean into when we're discussing this issue, when we're counseling with individuals who struggle with this issue, or their, their families who do. The first is a book called Washed and Waiting. It was written about 10 years ago by Dr. Wesley Hill. Dr. Hill is a theology professor and an Anglican priest. He teaches at Pittsburgh Seminary. Um, does a phenomenal job with dealing with a lot of the nuance around this issue. Another is Greg Johnson. Greg is a pastor, Presbyterian pastor in St. Louis, Missouri. Just wrote a book last year called Still Time to Care. Both of these men are same-sex attracted men who are faithful to what the church has believed for 2,000 years about marriage and sex. And what you'll find in those books is the essence of the approach that we take at Covenant. This is what we believe. Now, with all that said, on the six occasions in Scripture where these particular actions are mentioned, they are called sinful. Additionally, when you line all six up in front of the larger backdrop of the biblical story around marriage and sex, one uniform message becomes abundantly clear. God created sex as a means of pleasure and procreation to be enjoyed exclusively between one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. Every other sexual expression that you see in the scriptures Every other sexual expression that you see in the culture is sin. It is forbidden. It is outside of God's good intention. And I think this really is the, if you look at this narrative honestly, it's the death knell to any effort that seeks to wedge any other relational structure into the marriage covenant. All right, so, uh, well, if it's only permitted within marriage, then what we got to do is we got to create a wider understanding of marriage, and we've got to, well, this is really the first time in all of human history that that's been done. I think probably is a good idea to keep in mind that if, if something is really that novel, the burden of proof is really on the novel thing, not so much on that which, which has seemed to carry human civilization forth for thousands and thousands of years. That's another argument for another day, but, but, here, the issue is you can't do that with the scriptures. There's just simply no way, if you stick with the word of God, to define a marriage as anything other than a man and a woman. You're like, wait a minute, what about all that polygamy? What about a Yeah, by the time we get to the New Testament, what does Paul do with all of that? Every bit of it. King David, yeah, he was a pervert. Yeah. Abraham, oh yeah, pimped out his wife, yeah. Bad dudes. Grace of God, right? One man, one woman, that, I mean, 
the narrative on this is so obviously consistent, it is absolutely unavoidable. And, and so even that, those things that were practiced by the heroes of our faith is shown from the start as out of sync with God's plan. Eventually it is condemned in the New Testament. So think about this for a moment, just, just in the context of those commands we read in the New Testament. Let's think about Ephesians 5. Let's think about Colossians chapter 3 when Paul is providing instruction to the husband to the wife in the marriage relationship. There's a lot of controversy even within the church on that, isn't there? A lot. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Every female just went, mm. right? What does that mean? What does that mean? Right? Why, why does that cause such tension? Why? Why are there raging debates even within the church about what that does mean and what that is? Because we know intuitively that gender matters. And we know intuitively that gender roles matter. That the relationships between the genders matter. We may not always agree on what that always looks like, but, but we get it. And so with that in view by itself, you think about those instructions. If, if you have two men or two women, two women and a man, that's not legal yet. Give it time. All right, that one's coming. But just who observes what in these commands that God's word gives us in order to lead to a healthy marriage? How do, how do you do that? What do we do with the instructions around divorce? Whether it's in the law of Moses or the teaching of Jesus. What do we do with Paul's constant use of this word porneia? Which is a bit of a junk drawer term, but it just describes any and all kinds of sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit knew that the human race would come up with newer forms of sexual misconduct with every successive generation that would make it impossible for a comprehensive list of all the forbidden things. And so he throws this word pernea in there as if to say, yeah, any and every other thing. Yeah, well, I came up with this practice or I came up with this approach or I came up with this kind of relationship and that's not on the list and Paul through the, the Holy Spirit through Paul said yeah it's, it's in the word porneia what do we do with that well that narrative arc as it relates to all of this narrative is, is brought to a point in first Corinthians 6 and that, that's where I think we find the, the most succinct teaching on this and other issues look at verse 9 with me or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What's an unrighteous person? Well, an unrighteous person is someone who doesn't do what is right. Is that simple enough? Right? Someone who will not inherit the kingdom of God is someone who does contrary to what is right. They do not gain possession of the kingdom. And then what follows is this list, again, not a comprehensive one, but it's a list of examples of unrighteous behavior sexual immoral that's the first one and that's the word porneia and Corinth was sort of the New Orleans of its day it was full of this kind of behavior idolaters someone who worships other gods adulterers married individuals who keep a lover on the side and they're being unfaithful to their spouse and is as harmless as that may seem it is very serious because it mirrors unfaithfulness to God thieves People who take things who don't belong to them. Greedy, someone who feels entitled to more than they have. A drunkard, someone who drinks a lot. All right, And I'm not just talking about somebody who's technically an alcoholic. If you go to the liquor cabinet for comfort, for coping, that, that's indicative of something very, very dark. Revilers, which is just another word for a physically or verbally abusive person. Someone who slanders or abuses other people for their own gain. Swindlers, vicious, ravenous people. Their selfishness has descended to the point that, that their whole life is just a reflection of, of hurting other people. All of these are behaviors that Paul says are indicative of people who do not belong to Jesus. Well, pastor, aren't we all sinners? Of course we are. But the question is whether you're a repentant one or an unrepentant one. That's the question. All right. Do I have sin in my life, sin in my heart? Do I have battles that I fight daily? Yes. How do I fight them? And that's really the question. And that brings us now to verse 9, which again, given the way things have developed in our culture, given the relationships that all of us probably have, if we're honest, with people we know and love and people who have all these other things in their life that we can and should commend, and we read this, nor men who practice homosexuality. Now, now, there's actually two words here. 
If you looked at an older translation, you would actually see this broken up into two categories. And I'm going to try to keep this as PG-13 as I can. But the first is a word that describes a man, sometimes a boy, but also can describe a man who submits his body for the sexual utility of another man. And the second is a male who practices intercourse actively with another male. So if you take on the one side of this, porneia, any and all sexual activity outside of God's paradigm rooted in creation of one man, one woman, sexual activity within the marriage covenant, and you couple it together with what we just read in English, you, you get a sense of how sanitized, really, that our English versions are. Because Paul has just described for us in very graphic detail both the active and passive partners in, in a homosexual act. And, and the context for this as it can be argued, admittedly, in certain other passages in Scripture, that, well, that was about pagan worship. That really wasn't about the sex. Guys, sexual immorality is pagan worship. It is. It's the worship of, listen, heterosexual, homosexual, it doesn't. Sex outside of marriage is pagan worship because you've chosen to attach yourself into the adoration of the, of the human body, a body of another individual, the body which is the apex. It's the crown jewel of all of God's creation. I'm not going to worship God. I'm going to worship that which comes as second place to God. So this, this whole idea, was well, it wasn't, Paul wasn't forbidding that activity. He was forbidding the, sec, the worship. When you participate in acti that activity, that is a form of worship. And here, it's not even attached to worship but every manner of pagan activity. And so when you, when you pair this with a graphic description, with a uniformly assumed witness of the text from Genesis to Revelation regarding marriage, three overarching and, and rather undeniable principles rise up out of this. And the first is, quite simply, that this activity is a sin. I don't say that lightly, but if you come to the scriptures honestly, you simply cannot walk away from them with any other conclusion. It is unrighteous activity, and if it is not laid down, it will cost you the kingdom of God. Here's the second thing. It is not the only sin. See, Paul gives this wide array of examples, but let's, let's just stay in the realm of sex just for a moment because I want everybody to be as comfortable as possible right here in front of me, right? Immorality of every kind is an unrighteous act. All right. It is no less unrighteous than the act Paul just described for us. We cannot, we should not be the kind of congregation that ignores sin or tells someone that something is okay if Scripture condemns it. But we also can't be the kind of church that picks and chooses what we call out and what we ignore. All right? Is this on the list? This is on the list. There are lots of other things in the list. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a business of shame. It's not. It's not a business of picking and choosing. It's not a, a business of calling out specific things and, and creating categories of unmentionable categories of untouchable people that are out there somehow. The gospel is concerned with curing the underlying sin nature through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, hear me well, because this isn't just about having compassion on a group of people God created in his image. This is about the integrity of the gospel. The goal is not heterosexuality. It is living in the righteousness of Jesus. No matter who you are, no matter what your proclivities are, no matter what your attractions are. And that brings me to the third point. It's a sin Jesus died for. Six of the most beautiful words come in verse 11. And such were some of you. Right? Those words are the clearest testimony to the power of the gospel. So if you are one of those people that struggles with same-sex attraction, with gender identity, and especially if that's you and you're sitting here right now, like, like I need you to know two things. Number one, you are not alone. You're like, really? I'm not the only? No, you, you are far from the only one. Far from the only Well, it sure does feel like it. Well, that's just because your pastors keep secrets really good. That's why. 
All right? That's your story to tell. It, it's, it's, when you get ready to tell it, it's yours. And we can, we can help you with that too. But you need to know you're not alone. And the second thing you need to know, especially when you struggle with this kind of thing, you, you have a home here. You have a home here. I just don't like, I, I don't think, I mean, I mean some people, is it? yeah, why don't you make me a list if that's how you feel, you self-righteous, pharisaical, you make a list of who you think is, should not be welcome in church, and I will take it from you on your way out the door. When we say everybody's welcome here, we mean it. We mean it. These are the clearest. Listen, the power of the gospel is about people who would not have that power ordinarily, just like I don't have that power, to live in the righteousness of Christ. That's what it's about. You are created in the image of God. Jesus died for your sins. And although we are sinners just like you, and we're not always going to get this right, and we're going to fumble it, we want you to know that you got a home here. So, so here's the million-dollar question for the rest of us. Like, how do we make that happen? Right? How do we do that in, in this environment? Well, that takes us to another passage of Scripture. So if you want to turn with me to Matthew 22... We're actually going to look at a passage that has absolutely nothing to do with this issue. Or does it? Jesus says in verse 35, well actually Matthew records this, this conversation. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So real quick context here. Deuteronomy 6 is what he's quoting. It's the Shema. Our Jewish neighbors have quoted this for thousands of years. This is the preeminent. It's the prime directive for those of you who speak Trekkie. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. In some translations, all, all your strength. But then Jesus does something. He adds to it. By the way, Jesus is the only person allowed to add to the book he wrote, right? But he adds love of neighbor to this, and then he equalizes the two by saying that the law and the prophets are summed up in these two commands. You need to love God. You need to love your neighbor. So the assumption is if you're doing the one, you will be doing the other. The corollary to that is you can't truly do the one without doing the other. You can't truly love God with all your heart and soul, mind and strength if you don't love your neighbor who is created in the image of God. Love God, love your neighbor. This is a very simple command that our current culture war has tried to make way too complicated. It just has. Can we in the church say that we love our LGBT neighbors without qualification? Only if we're being obedient to Jesus. Yeah. I mean, think about how we do this with our other neighbors. Think, think about our Muslim neighbors, for example. Right? We don't qualify our love for those neighbors. We're also pretty clear, are we not, that we don't endorse Islam. There's no reason we should not treat every single human being in exactly the same way. And so let, let me say, especially this to, the, to anybody in this room right now, you're, you're struggling with one of these issues, Especially like if it's same-sex attraction, gender identity, and you're in this current climate, and, and you could have, frankly, you could have gone to a church that would have told you everything's fine, and you're a, for some reason, possibly, maybe because, as I've heard before, from members of this community, well, we kind of like, I mean, we we'd rather be affirmed than than challenged and faced with it, but we we kind of like to go to a church that opens the Bible, and we've discovered that a lot of those churches never open one, and so, but for whatever reason that you're here. I, I, somebody should tell you what an enormous amount of courage it takes to walk into a Bible-believing church in the West where so much of the church has been co-opted by culture warring. Just the fact that you're sitting here. Somebody needs to tell you we're glad you're here. Let me be the first. I'm thankful for you. I'm glad that you're here. Guys, we... We have one enemy. Everybody else is somebody Jesus died to save. Okay? Now, here's the other thing I want to say. Giving people 
the respect that they're worthy of as image bearers of God demands that we never, ever lie to you. There's not a single one of us, this guy included, that, doesn't have, that has every part of our life given over to Jesus. It's why the church exists, so we all grow toward him together. None of us can claim that every part of our life is compatible with God's design and will. Every one of us has to be loved unconditionally and challenged biblically. That's why we just refuse around here to bow to the prevailing cultural winds. Neither the far left that demands this unthinking acceptance and affirmation that borders on absurdity of every kind of activity or proclivity, nor the far right that wants to make everybody into opposing political pawns to hate. We're not giving in to any of that because we love you, all of you. And we want you to inherit the kingdom of God. And we do not believe that any of us is the sum total of our sexual desires. None of us should be defined exclusively by one narrow part of our life. It's, it's why regardless of where you find yourself on this issue, you're going to find people at Covenant who will treat you just like everybody else. So let me ask you three questions to just kind of wrap this up. How many of you feel like there's at least a million other questions you have that haven't been answered? You're welcome. Yeah. It's complex, isn't it? Like, I don't know what to do. And he said, I've been invited to this wedding, or I've been invited to take pictures, or this, and I don't know what to do. Yeah, we don't take a position on that. We're going to help you kind of think through that, what, what's going to be right. What is your conscience telling you to do? There's not chapter and verse on most of this stuff. But guys, what there is chapter and verse on, we're going to talk about it. Because God demands it. God demands it. Three questions to know if we're ready for this. Here's question number one. Do we know what a woman is? Now, some of y'all don't realize that in your laughter you gave yourselves away. Let me, let me ask it more comprehensively. Do we know what a man is too? Okay. Yes, I know Daily Wire put out a whole documentary on this. I watched it. I watched it. It wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. It certainly dealt with, with some of the greater absurdities that we see on the far left. But here, here's the one issue, the one, and I mean one big one. I'm not talking about like, oh, there was just a little problem here, a little bit. I'm talking about the poison pill. No Jesus. None. How are you going to solve a problem like this without Jesus? How are you going to do that? Listen, some of the, even some of the Christian literature around this is just so shallow. I, I, I went looking in vain for a picture that I could not find. Uh, it's a picture taken around 1975, 1976 of a four- or five-year-old boy with a baby doll pushing a stroller, right? That little boy was me. Now, if my mother, God rest her soul, were still alive and still had her faculties, she'd probably find it in 10 minutes because it was the picture she loved to show to all the girls I'd bring home, right? Because <laughs> it just, it, it was, right? So what, what, do you, what do you do with a little boy that plays with dolls? And by the way, they never stop playing with dolls. They just become action figures. That's all it is, right? <laughs> Look at me, people. Do I strike any of you as effeminate? I love babies. They make me melt. They really do. They really do. I, like, we got to get over this. I didn't, well, you can't be like, some of y'all right now, you got a little boy playing with dolls at home, and you need to leave him alone. The culture has taught you, right wing, left wing, whatever it is, that this, there's something wrong with this. Hunting season's coming around in a few months. You know, neither one of my boys has really any interest in that at all. If there's somebody that's going to go with dad and sit with dad in a tree stand, you know who it's going to be? It's going to be my daughter. And she's, she's not a bad shot either. <laughs> so what do we say to that? Do we, like, if we buy into the, the real tight, say, some of us have drawn the lines of gender identity incredibly tight in a way the scriptures haven't spoken to. All right? 
In my generation, it was, it was guys that wear earrings. You know, it was just automatically assumed something was wrong with them. Now it's guys that wear fingernail polish, and it's, it's all this. Now listen, it, to, to the minors in the room, do what your parents ask you to do, okay? Don't start a fight. Don't triangulate between me and your kids, me, me and your mom and dad, okay? Do what they ask you to do. But, but some of us are like, we got this automatic, like, where do we find the cultural root the biblical command, when you draw lines of gender identity tighter than Scripture, you're asking for trouble. You're asking for it. If you don't have room in your understanding of biblical masculinity for an artistic, emotionally sensitive poet, you don't have any room for King David. If you don't have room in your understanding of biblical femininity, of a woman that runs her own business, of a woman that commands an army, of a woman that can kill somebody. You don't have any room for the Proverbs 31 woman or for J.L. or for Deborah. Guys, we just simply have to, listen, when you do that, you are begging to have your children given over to the new sexual revolution because somebody will come along to a little girl sitting in a tree stand with her daddy and if her daddy has drawn those gender lines so artificially and so tightly that they can look at her and go well maybe you're not a girl at all maybe you're not a boy at all we got to do better we got to do better so let's ask ourselves that question okay we <laughs> because when we do that we're not tying gender to biology either we're tying it to sociology in that moment what it means to be a man what it means to be a woman is rooted indelibly in biology let me be abundantly clear about that but it is defined in total by God's Word and we don't need to add to that we simply must do better so that's question number one question number two can we start the story in the right place you know, the biblical narrative has four chapters, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. All right. Every story, every command, every syllable of scripture starts somewhere in those chapters. If, if you're more, more progressive Christians tend to skip right over chapter two, all right, and that's incomplete as well. There's some things in our lives that are out of sync with God's will, but, but our LGBT neighbors, while they may sometimes live in ways that our faith calls wrong, are just like all of our other neighbors in this way. Their story starts at chapter 1, just like yours does, just like mine does. Created in the image and likeness of God. The same loves, the same fears, the same anxieties. But part of what it means to love another person in the way that God loves them is to believe the same things that God believes about them. And the first thing God says about all of us is that we are created in his image and he loves us. So that's question number two. Here's question number three. Can we return good for evil? Okay. We, the, the culture war narrative tells you that everybody is either on one side or the other and we're locked and loaded and ready at DEFCON 1. That's just a completely false narrative of the vast majority of people living in this country. There's about 10 to 15% far right, about 10 to 15% far left. that are, And I don't mean even their positions. I mean they're, they're what, what sociologists call affective Toxic polarization. They're just ready to go to war and they're looking for a reason to do it. Those of us right here are what are called the exhausted middle. That's a sociology term, but it sounds pretty dang accurate, doesn't it? Like, I'm getting tired of this. Like, everything's a fight. Everybody's offended by everything. Like, can we just live with each other, right? And, and so for most people, that's the reality. But that 10, 15%, they're still out there. And that's why I asked this question, because I have no delusions after speaking on a, on a subject like this that this message is going to somehow endear me or us to the more radical elements of this movement. So that's the question. You know, in a few weeks when somebody pulls this message off the web and dices it up and makes me say something maybe I didn't say, or, or they make fun of it, or they start, like what? If, if that happens, it may not happen, but it could. When we're called names, attacked, cussed out, 
Can we respond in love? Love doesn't lie. Love also does not attack. The truth is the truth no matter what. To be a follower of Jesus, you've got to rest in the truth and love people and believe until you see him that that's enough. All right? And here's, here's what we're aiming for. Grounded in truth so that we can be committed. You can't love people if you're not rooted in the truth. Not the way they deserve. Not the way the Lord expects. A community of faith grounded in the truth and committed to love everybody. Let me tell you why this is. Because in very, very short order, and by short order I mean the next 30 to 50 years. I know that seems like forever to some of you. But from the standpoint of human history, that is a snap of the fingers. It is a moment in time. This culture that we're in the middle of right now is going to need this love because the house of cards is going to come down i mentioned how utterly absurd this is and i don't i don't do that to insult anybody I'm, i do it to give an accurate description of this ideology that will cause collapse it, it just will there was a new terminal that opened up at charles de gaulle airport in paris 20 years ago this month actually and it looked like this isn't that beautiful you ever look at a structure like that and go how in the world is that thing held up like i do that all the time because i'm not my son i don't i don't have architectural i don't have design abilities i i'm i'm good to get a right angle on something and so you look at that and you go man that is beautiful 11 months later it looked like this it collapsed completely um you, you want to know what happened it was a design flaw. They discovered that engineers had designed how to keep the building up. Architects, using that design, had built the design around it. And then somewhere in the building process, someone did not like where a support had been placed. It was not aesthetically pleasing. It wasn't pretty, basically. So they just moved it. Now, the problem is that support, it was a counterweight. And it was necessary, as it turns out, to the integrity of the structure. See, the structure was representative of what we call postmodern architecture. And you can, go to great, you can go to our great cities all over the United States and see these phenomenal buildings. And you, you know you're looking at postmodern architecture if you're looking at it and asking the question, how is that thing staying upright? How is that happening? Like, I don't, I don't even understand. Well, the fact of the matter is, it is staying upright because there are hidden supports that you don't see that are keeping it propped up, and without those supports, it will actually come down in exactly the angle that you think it looks like it will come down. Because at the end of the day, the building has to stand, right? This is why in the day and age in which we live, everybody with money wants a postmodern architect, but nobody with their right mind wants a postmodern engineer. When it comes to engineering, you want that guy with Coke bottle thick glasses and the pocket protector and the disposition of a grumpy groundhog. That's what you want. Because at the end of the day, you want that thing to stand. You better have a counterweight or it could be destroyed. What we have right now is a society trying to build whatever they want, without a counterweight. This is what Scripture is teaching us about gender, about our relationships, about our sexuality. We, I, you just cannot build that merely however you want. We need a biblical counterweight. And, and what we're already beginning to see, not even, I mean, you could take the church completely out of this discussion and you see raging debate even within culture around so much of this and it should be an indicator to you that we are witnessing the beginning trembling of the collapse of the house. So the question is this, will you and I be the people they know they can come to when their house collapses? If the sum total of what you have is a Daily Wire episode, you will not be that person. If the sum total of what you have is just open, whatever, yeah, then you're going to have a refugee from this revolution coming to you. So I tried open and affirming and whatever, and this is what it got me. So what do you have? In the end, the building has to stand. Where will they be? Okay. In the middle of all this, people.
created in God's image and likeness? Will we be the people to welcome them with open arms? Will we create a safe space that allows them to struggle? And the truth of the gospel is we can be if we are willing to struggle with others through the hardest and sometimes excruciating parts of a really, really simple command. Love the Lord with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're a part of this community that has joined us here, or you're closeted because you're scared to death of what people are going to think of you, hear this pastor tell you, if you are struggling, if you are afraid, you have a home here. I love you as my brother, as my sister. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we know that truth is, truth sometimes offends But, Lord, we too often use that as an excuse to just be offensive. And so, Lord, would you just remove the cute from us, the sarcastic nonsense, the the coarse joking, just the things that, that would keep us from obeying the command that you told us was chief above all others when you walked this earth to love you with all our heart soul mind and strength to love our neighbors as ourselves and we admit we don't have all the answers to what that looks like but we pray today father for the illumination of your spirit and mostly for the love of christ to be overwhelming and overflowing in our hearts i pray all this in jesus name amen Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.